Okay, so if you remember last week, uh, we were in Ecclesiastes, which is the book of the Bible, right in the middle of your, your Bible. You go to uh, Psalms and you just kind of hang a right. You're going you're gonna to run into the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we have printed them on your worship guide. And we are in a series. We are now six weeks into this thing. But last week, uh, we heard King Solomon uh, just, I mean, truly scrutinize what we are doing in here on a Sunday morning. Um, he looks at kind of the, what we do at church, what we do in church, and he just kind of, like, the hammer drops. The way that we attend church, he scrutinizes that. The way that we pray and sing, he shows some scrutiny there. The way we give our monies and even just the motivation for getting here, I mean, he truly kind of looks at it and examines it and has a critical eye. Uh, it's important for us to actually, as church folks, people that come to, to, to worship, for us to look at that and go, okay, am I appropriately walking into a gathering? And that's what church means. Church for, you know, in the original means ecclesia, which means the gathering. And so every Sunday, week in and week out, as we gather, it's good for Solomon to throw a little shade our way to help us recognize that we cannot take this too lightly. He does that because worship means a lot to all of us. Uh, we do a lot to worship. And if we look around the world, it's not just us who are gathering in a worship service. But there are many tribes and tongues and many different religions that are doing similar things, and yet their worship and their devotion looks very different from ours. And so if you look, uh, let's just say, uh, across the globe, and if you go to India or some other place, and some tribe somewhere is doing some ritual to appease some god, they will go to great measures to get this god's attention. Um, just do a quick Google search, and the rituals are truly outlandish, if not a little bit scary. Um, you will see uh, rituals trying to appease some gods where people would submerge themselves in, in water for hours, trying to purify their bodies and therefore be acceptable to some god. Now you're going to see that uh, they, there are some people that believe that we are inherently like, totally evil, Right? And the darkness in, in, inside of us can only be let out by piercing themselves to allow the sun to get into the inner core. And so you have this entire practice of piercing. There are, there's a real thing going on in India where parents of, of small children, like newborns, will climb a ladder up a tower that's 50 or 60 feet tall, take their, their one-year-old or so and drop it off the tower trying, waiting for it to be caught by the crowd below. Because they believe that if that baby survives that drop, then the gods will promise that that baby health for the, entire, the entirety of his life. These are the types of things that we do to worship. Because worship is the thing that we do. It's often expressed in what we do. And so the way that we define worship, even as Christians, is oftentimes linking our faith with our actions. And so what would people do, or how would people describe our worship? That's just a, just a question, an honest question. There's one more God that I want to describe here that's not in India or southeast Sudan. But this is a God that you and I know very well. 
a God that's here in the States, this, here in America. Uh, this is a God that we too will have great adoration to because we believe that this God offers us the security and the safety and the promise and the power and all these things. And so their people in America will really do anything at all cost to this God. Uh, we find ourselves, you know, offering all types of sacrificing to this God. Uh, we will give up our time. We will give up our health. We will give up our spouses, we will give up our children to appease this God because of what this God promises us here in America. You and I are familiar with this thing. And this God is the God of money. You and I would necessarily go to a temple of money or find ourselves bowing down to money. And yet the way we act is oftentimes the way that we worship. The way we have faith and our action are oftentimes glued together. In America, we call this thing the almighty dollar. We've given an adjective that belongs to God and God alone, almighty, and we've given it to the American currency of a dollar. Why? Because what that dollar promises you and me is that we will be safer with it or we will be more powerful with it. Here's how I like to think about it as I've been praying this week, is that the people of God in their worship service, Solomon was scrutinizing that worship service because there was a temptation to serve self, not God, here in the worship space. But the second we all stand up in the shoes of our, our, our feet, walk outside that door, there will be another temptation for self that will come our way. And what Solomon is saying is church folks, people who would gather, who would give up a Sunday to do this, just know that the temptation is just beginning because the temptation to serve money, to worship money truly is waiting for you as we leave here. King Solomon ends chapter 5 and begins chapter 6 with this. And so if you've got your Bibles, I would then really encourage you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we'll uh, pick up in verse 10 and, and go and, and following. Um, because um, we want you to know this. We want you to know this. There is absolutely no satisfaction with money. That's the one idea. That's the thing that I want you to write in your, in your worship guides or your, your little Ecclesiastes booklet. There literally is no satisfaction with money. There really isn't. There can't be. Um, we confess to a lot of things, church folks. Um, we confess to the anger that we have because the, it's the anger <laughs> come raging out of us and we go, okay, we got a problem with that. Um, it's easy to confess uh, the lust that's in our hearts because of the improprieties that have lined our past. So it's easy to identify lust. Um, it's easy to identify jealousy because of the envy you have toward that friend or neighbor and the thing that they have. It's easy to identify that. However, how the, re the problem is, is that it's hard for you and I to identify that money, that we have a problem with it. 
Because other people have problems with money. Like people that have more money than us, they're the ones who have problems. So the people of Wall Street or the athletes or the people on magazine, like those people may have problems with money. But this is no, um, this is, uh, none of us are exempt here. Solomon is simply just writing to the human species here, saying we all have a problem with it. Money is the engine that drives our economy. Money is the thing that drives us and the reason we get up in the morning so often. That's why advertisement really does matter. I mean, every time you turn on your television, there's an ad to try to tell you to buy something. Because with that exchange, your money, their product, you get something in return. Maybe a safety, maybe a security, maybe it's comfort. I don't know, but there's an exchange that you are willing to do. Facebook ads, Instagram ads, I mean, all of these things, they're pushing you to purchase things. We've got such a problem in America. Um, I get an email uh, uh, every day that kind of gives me up to current events, those types of things. And this week I read that you can go to a, a website, like it's called like Pennant or something, and you can buy a Cheeto in the shape of a lobster claw, a lobster claw, a Cheeto, for $3,000. I didn't know that was a thing, much less who has $3,000 to collect Cheetos that look like things. Believe me, there's a market out there. It's crazy cakes. We think they have a problem, but Solomon says, no, 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 no. Let's, let's back it on up. and let's, let's scrutinize ourselves because this is not a rich man's problem or a poor man's problem. This isn't a middle class problem. This isn't an educated, uneducated. This isn't a race issue. This is a human issue. In the same way that we in 2019 will give monies to Cheetos that look like things, is the same motivation that our ancestors rushed out west to beat the gold rush. And here, 3,000 years ago, King Solomon wrote this letter to us. It's a human problem that we all have. You will not be satisfied with money. Here's how it's going to break down. Again, I wish I had my little TV screen, but here's, here's how it's going to break down. Number one, you're going to hear that people who pursue wealth will not be satisfied. That's what you're going to hear. That people who pursue wealth will not be satisfied. Number two, you're going to hear that not only is there dissatisfaction given to this pursuit of wealth, but number two is you're going to see King Solomon actually call it evil. The evil of people not trying, or the evil of people not enjoying what God has given them. So one, there's dissatisfaction. And two, is this idea that the evil of people not enjoying what God has given them. And thirdly, is just this kind of practical point that you and I need to, to be satisfied with what God has given us. Okay, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's pretty plain and clear. He's trying to be as direct as possible. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. There's a comma there and it keeps going. Nor is nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This has been the theme so far for Solomon. Everything under the sun has been underneath 
Solomon's eye and he says, that's vanity and that's vanity and that's vanity. That's worthless. That's fleeting. That's short-lived. That's going to go up in smoke, smoke over and over and over. And here in verse 10, he simply says, the love for money and the love that wealth brings with your income, that is vanity. This love of money is this idea that before anything else in your life, you will pursue this thing. If you want to know what it means to be a lover of money, this is the main goal of your life, is simply to accrue this stuff for yourself. Now, what Solomon is saying is that money is not the problem. Money is just fine. Jesus would, talks more about money than he does heaven or hell. So, I mean, he, I mean money is not the issue. Paul would say the love of, of money is the beginning of or a source of all types of evil. But money in itself is just fine and good. It's, where, it's when money becomes the sole purpose of your identity. That's where you get in trouble. That's where we need to realize. And so why is money so unsatisfactory? Well, he gives us two examples. He goes on in verse, uh, verse 11. He says, when goods increase, that means like, so when you are able to pr- uh, produce a profit, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage is their owner but to see them with his eyes? You see what's going on here? In verse 11, someone has hit the lottery. You've all heard this, this thing that where someone gets a hundred million dollars and before they knew it, every uncle and aunt and cousin and third, like something once removed that they've never even heard of, they all show up and were like, Uncle Dan, how are you? You remember me? And he's like, no, I don't remember you. This is exactly what's happening with people who turn a profit. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. What advantage is there only? owner only to see them go on with his eyes. This is what is happening, is that this person is able to turn a profit. This person is a very good businessman, but with it comes all sorts of things. And most of the things that we can anticipate is that it's simply going to be enjoyed by someone else, or you are going to attract the crowd. The bigger the bank account the bigger your fan club. People will just show up. And so, Solomon is saying, is what good are your, is your wealth if it's simply just going to be nibbled on and taken away from you by other people? And so one illustration of one author says it like this, is that with more wealth comes more like people that just surround you. And so, of course, the more that you have, you need a good accountant to kind of take care of it. And the more you have, the tax man comes and he wants his piece of the pie. But not only with more wealth, but you also have opportunities to do stuff. And so the maid comes in or the nanny moves in or just you just continue to say, and so it may not just be like moochers like coming and gobbling it up. It may be that you are willingly paying a lot more people now than you normally would. But the still the the same point is that there are other people consuming the things that you worked really, really hard for, and that should be a warning to us. Number two goes on like this. Verse 11 says that there are people that come uh, just out of the woodwork and to enjoy them. Number 12, verse 12 says this, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. 
but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And so there's true damage that is happening to this wealthy person. This is our second example. There's damage. There's a liability that is going on here. They're actually not living a better life. Instead, they, their, their sleep is being taken from him. In one way, there is a laborer who works really, really hard in an honest day's work, and he just goes. He feeds his family. He goes to bed, and he sleeps like a baby. But then there's another person, a person who is full of riches, that is anxious and toil, and he's so like wound up that there's no way that he's able to get ahead or he's got to have to manage it all. All of that anxiety is causing him sleepless nights. And this is what Solomon is telling us. Is that yes, there is a work ethic. You go, but make sure you are resting on your pillow. Make sure that your, your nights are not taken from you because of the wealth that you have accrued. Just be careful and watch your sleep cycles and watch your anxieties because maybe, just maybe, you're holding on to money more tightly than you think. And so where one is sleeping, the other person is not sleeping. They're like juiced up on caffeine and, and just, I mean, they're working all hours of the night and all mornings of the night. They're ne- never, there's never enough. There's not another another deal that will get them far enough ahead. And so the more and the more and the more is creating anxiety and creating sleeplessness. And what Solomon is saying is, is it worth it? People who are holding on too tightly, especially holding it tightly and closely, there's just no satisfaction for this person. I think about movies where people steal stuff like a bank heist or a treasure movie. What happens when the bank robbers get what they, you know, what they're aiming for? They actually get it in their possession. They throw it in some van. Then some van. There's a police chase, and they escape the police, and now it's theirs. And then the next clip is just the most honest of all the whole movie, because acquiring the wealth was the easy part. It's now in their garage when they have the Mona Lisa or. A, you know, a a billion dollars worth of gold coins or something. It's at that moment that the trouble starts because they're looking at it and they're like, what do we do now? We've worked so hard for it, but what if it just, what? We can't put it in a bank. We can't spend it because the FBI is out for us. And so the anxiety and the worry starts there. We will never be satisfied with our, with with money. We're going to jump to verse 13. Verse 13, this, the tone changes. What was once unsatisfactory, you will not be satisfied with money, you will not be satisfied with, with wealth. Verse 13 says there is a grievous evil. And so the tone really does change. This, this word, grievous evil, um, I had to do a little tinkering around to figure this out. Evil is evil, grievous is grievous. But this, the, 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 the thing here is this thing that would make you sick, literally make you sick at your stomach. Something that is so bad or so worthless or the thing that would go so badly would give you just a stomach ache. It's the worst. And so there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. And he gives us two pictures. One, uh, a picture of an economic crash. And the other is someone who is just surrounded with so much money 
and yet he is all by his all by his lonesome. And these two pictures is what makes Solomon sick. This is a grievous evil. And so this is what I've seen that's grievous, that's sickening that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. This may be a miser, you know, someone who just keeps things and holds things and a hoarder and maybe those types of things, but maybe not. Maybe it is that, but maybe there's something else. But we do know that there is another liability, that the riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. It was to his detriment that he kept all of his stuff too closely. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. So maybe he's a a miser, but most of all, or more likely, is this idea of a bad venture. This person has experienced a collapse of some sort. Maybe the economy took a downturn. Maybe he got swindled out of his money by a bad business deal. Maybe a war or some kind of economic, uh, or uh, some kind of turmoil that happened with a political cycle. We're not really sure, but we know that he had a lot. He kept it close, and with one bad venture, it was gone in a second. And he says, this will make your, your, your stomach hurt when something like this happens. He gets real graphic in that he says not only were the riches lost, but he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You've all heard the thing, the little phrase that you've never seen, a U-Haul and a hearse like going together because there's just nothing that you can keep beyond this life. Well, the same is true for this hoarder, this person who put all of their and all of their wealth in one spot to see it evaporate just like that. This is a gravest evil, so much so that he has nothing to hand down to his son, and then the graphic image of nakedness. He's got literally nothing. Nothing to hand his kid and not a stitch of fabric on his back. What Solomon is trying to tell us, because we're very wealthy, we live in a wonderful country, a great place. He's trying to warn us. There's just nothing satisfactory. Wealth overpromises and underdelivers every single time. He tells us that naked, naked as he, as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You're potentially one, one recession away from losing it all. Do not put your, your value there. And then in verse 16, there's another grievous evil. This also, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip forward. Um, let's, let's move to uh, Ecclesiastes 6, verse 1, just because we're running out of time. There's a second kind of grievous evil. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 1 says this. This is his second example. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. 
And so in one picture, you see someone who has accrued a ton of things only to see it evaporate. Now we're seeing a man, and it's a different picture. You see, we see a man with his wealth and with his possessions and with his honor and accolades and all of the academia. And here is, he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And then there's a comma. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them. But again, a stranger is the one who enjoys them. This is a picture of a man, potentially at the end of his life. And he has more wealth than any of us can ever even dream of. And yet this man is all by himself. He's got plenty of stuff. He's got, his name is great. His name is on all kinds of buildings. And yet, God has taken the desire of his, has yanked the desire from him so that he can't even enjoy it. And he says, this turns my stomach. This makes me hurt. He spent all of that time and energy and effort over and over and over to accrue these things, and yet it comes to nothing. Three weeks ago, we quoted Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey is the comedian who's just influenced our lives and made us laugh more than once. But he says this, and I'll re-quote it. I think everybody should get rich and famous in the same way that I did. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they can see that it is not the answer. You see, this man is something. It tells us that uh, this father in verse 3, it says he is a father of hundreds of children. You know, so he is so prolific and he's so wonderful. He doesn't just have earthly possessions. He's got hundreds of kids. And it goes on to say that he's lived, verse 6, even though he should live 2,000 uh, years twice over. Here is a picture of a man who has everything, including kids, and he's able to live 2,000 years on the planet. And yet, if God removes this ability to enjoy what you have right in front of you, it is worthless. A couple of months ago, uh, Oliver had a birthday. And if you know Oliver, he's uh, quite eccentric and pretty loud. And he's very opinionated, and you don't have to wonder a second what is in his mind or in his heart. This man, or this boy, has big desires, and they're lofty desires. He's been asking probably for four years for a motorcycle. And we continue to tell him, you're not getting a motorcycle, but he continues to ask. He just won't be told no. Well, this cycle was, and we'd already told him no with the motorcycle, but he wanted a BB gun. He wanted to shoot birds and squirrels, and he wanted to see if he was a good marksman. And so we'd already given him a knife at nine, so we were like, okay, maybe, just maybe, you won't shoot your eye out. Maybe you're ready for a BB gun. Well, Amazon Prime said that it would get here for his birthday. And so we're just waiting, just waiting, just waiting. He pushed, like, the refresh button for the UPS tracker number. I mean, he was, I mean, he was ready to go. Finally, just finally, uh, his birthday had already started. He had a friend over, I think, or something like that. Anyway, I was at at, uh, at work. It was about lunchtime, and the tracking number said it was going to be delivered. It got delivered. He has this 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 uh, gun in front of him. A friend's over, and he knew that today was the day that Oliver was going to get his gun. 
And he brought a gift for Oliver for his birthday. He brought BBs. And so, I mean, it's unbelievable. We have a gun, and now we have a friend with real BBs. I mean, this is a marriage made in heaven. And so, Oliver gets it, tears it, rips it, holds the gun. I'm not there. This is through Nicole. Holds the gun. He points the gun at his little brother, at the squirrels. I mean, he's just ready. He's like, how do I fill it up? How do I fill it up? How do I fill it up? And there, the friend says, here, I brought you BBs for your birthday. So they open the little thing, the hatch, and they pour in these BBs. Shh, shh, make a mess. There's BBs everywhere. They close. They run outside. Cock, cock, cock. Here we go. They get out, and they went, and the gun makes a sound, and there's there, nothing happened. And then what happens? So they cock again and, went, and there's, there's no BBs coming out of the BB gun. And he looks down the barrel, which you should never do, by the way. He looks down the barrel and he's like, Mom, there's a BB stuck in my gun. Look. I mean, we, don't, we haven't had this gun 20 minutes and it's already broke. I mean, it is done for. You see, the little kid who was doing an amazing thing, brought a pile of BBs. The only problem is that they were airsoft BBs that are just like a millimeter bigger than a lead BB. And so the BB literally got stuck in the hosel, got stuck in the barrel, chamber, <laughs> gun parts. Anyway, all that to say is it's stuck. And Nicole calls and she was like, you'll never believe this. And my stomach, my heart, was sick. And so, men and women, when we put all of our faith in money, it's like a BB gun on your birthday that you couldn't wait to get. It's supposed to break. It's supposed to get lodged. It's supposed to malfunction because that's not what we're built for. We're not built to have it all. Instead, we're built for something else. We're built to enjoy God and enjoy Him. You see, life under the sun without God is like a broken BB gun for your birthday that gets jammed on the first shot. Because without God, nothing, no matter how good the gift is, nothing is good. And so there's this beautiful little passage at the end of chapter 5. 18 and following tells us some good news. The way that the Hebrew writers do it is that um, it looks a lot like a pyramid. And so the climax is actually in the middle of the story. We like to like put it at the end, so that's the reason it's, it looks misplaced a little bit here. But in verse 18, it just gives us a, just a, so much hope and so much it says, behold, what I have seen to be good. You see that? Seen to be good and fitting is, I mean, these are, these are declarative statements, is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. And that's the point. Wealth is never the issue. Making wealth a God is the issue. The point here is that God is able to give you things, but we have to enjoy God first before we enjoy His gifts. Don't you see? If we enjoy His gifts before we enjoy God, we turn it into worship, into worshiping other things. We turn it into the, 
to the idol. And so he wants you a few days of your life that God has given you for this is your lot. Verse 19 says this, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to, he wants you to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. Do you see the amount of joy and goodness and enjoyment that's happening? For this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is a worship service unto God amidst wealth and power. So it can be possible for 40 minutes, I've been talking bad news, terrible news. And yet here in the middle of a passage, it tells us that there is a way to find enjoyment and pleasure, and it's to worship God over God's gifts. Because when God is the author of those gifts, you can't help but to praise Him and give Him credit, not yourself credit, for the things that are at your feet and in your possession. And so this passage is very present tense. It's not future tense. It's not past tense. It's right here, right now. Men and women of Redstone Church, what's right in front of you? What is right in front of you? And if you're able to see it correctly as a gift given by God, then you will truly enjoy the things because this is a gift that God has given us. This is what it means. This is this idea that every morning we get up, we see what the Lord has given us, and we be content in those things. We find enjoyment over the car that we drive or the house that He has given to you. You rejoice in the pantry that is full or maybe not. But whatever is in front of you, you see the things, the guitars and the straps and the stands and the eyeglasses, and you see these things because if it is given to us by God, then we worship Him rather than making our name great. God wants us to enjoy the daily gifts that He has given us. So instead of pursuing riches, this morning, we want you to pursue God's daily gifts to enjoy them fully and completely. It's now. It's present tense. It's right in front of us. And God says, hold on to it and enjoy it. You've never been to Mozambique or Honduras, and neither have I. But week in and week out, we hear stories of our missionaries there in Mozambique and in Honduras. These are some of the most economically just depressed places on earth. We're, we're drilling for well and for waters in, in these villages. Carlos in, in Honduras, he barely has a place to stay. He's trying to create some shed type thing. And yet, as you hear these stories, without economic gain, we hear joy. And we hear contentment. Paul would say, whether I have plenty or whether I'm in need, I have. there is a way for you and I to be content. And the contentment comes knowing that God is the author of good things. So Redstone, I don't want us to leave here materialists. We're just, just, just wanting to gain the next dollar 
or wanting to hold on to all the things of life as if they are everything. Instead, I want us to move here and get out of here changed and to see everything that we have in our possession as a gift from God to be enjoyed. Him first, things second. God first, relationships second. And to see how He blesses those things. The best line of this passage is for He will not remember much the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Has God occupied your heart? So much so, whether in plenty, in want, that you find yourself content. This passage doesn't have a whole lot of God in it. It's a very secular passage, except for these three verses. And in it, over and over and over, it's God, 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 God. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to point us toward. Not the things under the sun, but to get our eyes to focus on the author, God himself, who has given us these things. Jesus tells us you cannot serve two masters. He's very clear about that. He says you will either... Go toward riches or you will go toward God. You cannot have two masters. And the way that we know that he is superior is because of 1 Corinthians 8 says this, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, this is Jesus who is rich beyond belief, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. It was a role reversal. He who had everything lost everything so that you, the ones who are poor, you who are in poverty might become rich. The things that really make you rich in this world are the things that God gives you. He is the author of those things. The thing that he offers freely for all of us is a relationship with Jesus who came from riches, to poverty for our sake and our sake only. Let's pray. Now, Jesus, I pray that we circle Ecclesiastes 5.20 and we will commit it to memory and that we will find ourselves given our life and understanding that we too can be occupied with joy in our heart when we think about God and what He has done for us. Money is not the problem, Lord. You tell us. Money is not the problem. It's what we do with it that's the problem. Maybe there are some in here that are truly fighting materialism. Maybe some of us, (laughs) me in here, that have swung too far from gaining things rather than just gaining God and being content with what He has given to us. If you find yourself a raging materialist in here, this is a safe place to confess your sins. To simply say, Jesus, I'm so sorry that I've lost focus of You and in its place I've accruing and gathering and gaining things of this world. 
this morning I realized that those things will not last. And one day, I will be gone from this earth. And what I want to define me more than anything is my relationship with you rather than my relationship with things. And there's some of you in here that have been striving so hard after things that you've forgotten that the most important thing is a relationship with Jesus. And when you heard 2 Corinthians 8 read aloud, that he who is rich became poor so that you who was stuck in poverty may be rich, your heart jumped a bit out of affection that you would do that for, for me. We live in a very wealthy country, a wealthy part of the country even. What are we going to do with what God has blessed us with? Is it His first or ours first? So Jesus, as we walk toward these tables and consuming bread and and drink that you've provided, help us to see that you are more generous than you are stingy. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. And so the night that Jesus was betrayed, he laid it all on the line. He gave everything up for us. You see, he had a body that was given for us. Jesus Christ is not stingy. He gives sacrificially for us. In the same way, he poured a chalice of wine. He says, this is the blood of my new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And so do you want a generous God who gives generously? Yes. If you believe in Jesus and you follow after Him, if you understand that you can put down your materialism and really walk toward the true definition of riches, which is Jesus, this table is for you. For all those who follow after Jesus, we would encourage you to come and partake of the table of one who has given generously for us and changed our life forever. So go ahead and stand. There are stations in the room. Uh, there's four guys around uh, that, uh, that will serve you communion. If you just find your heart agitated a little bit and you just need somebody to pray with you, we've got a prayer team in the back who would love just to take you on a journey and just hear your story and also pray for you. In either case, if you follow Jesus, come to the table and come with a joyful heart.